0: Section 10 of Our National Parks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Toby Wedgel Our National Parks by John Muir. Chapter 6 Among the Animals of Yosemite. The Sierra Bear, brown or gray, The sequoia of the animals, tramps over all the park, though few travelers have the pleasure of seeing him. On he fares through the majestic forests and canyons, facing all sorts of weather, rejoicing in his strength, everywhere at home, harmonizing with the trees and rocks and shaggy chaparral, happy fellow. His lines have fallen in pleasant places. Lily gardens in silver fir forests, miles of bushes in endless variety and exuberance of bloom over hill waves and valleys and along the banks of streams canyons full of music and waterfalls parks fair as eden places in which one might expect to meet angels rather than bears in this happy land no famine comes nigh him all the year round his bread is sure for some of the thousand kinds that he likes are always in season and accessible, ranged on the shelves of the mountains like stores in a pantry. From one to another, from climate to climate, up and down he climbs, feasting on each in turn, enjoying as great variety as if he traveled to far-off countries north and south. To him almost everything is food except granite. Every tree helps to feed him, every bush and herb with fruits and flowers, leaves and bark, and all the animals he can catch—badgers, gophers, ground squirrels, lizards, snakes, etc.—and ants, bees, wasps, old and young, together with their eggs and larvae and nests. Crunched and hashed down all go to his marvelous stomach and vanish as if cast into a fire— what digestion? A sheep or a wounded deer or a pig, he eats warm, about as quickly as a boy eats a buttered muffin. Or should the meat be a month old, it still is welcomed with tremendous relish. After so gross a meal as this, perhaps the next will be strawberries and clover, or raspberries with mushrooms and nuts, or puckery acorns and choke cherries and as if fearing that anything eatable in all his dominions should escape being eaten he breaks into cabins to look after sugar dried apples bacon etc occasionally he eats the mountaineer's bed but when he has had a full meal of more tempting dainties he usually leaves it undisturbed though he has been known to drag it up through a hole in the roof carry it to the foot of a tree and lie down on it to enjoy a siesta eating everything never is he himself eaten except by man and only man is an enemy to be feared bar meat said a hunter from whom i was seeking information bar meat is the best meat in the mountains their skins make the best beds and their grease the best butter biscuit shortened with bar grease goes as far as beans A man will walk all day on a couple of them biscuit." In my first interview with the Sierra Bear, we were frightened and embarrassed, both of us, but the bear's behavior was better than mine. When I discovered him, he was standing in a narrow strip of meadow, and I was concealed behind a tree on the side of it. After studying his appearance as he stood at rest, I rushed toward him to frighten him, that I might study his gait in running. But contrary to all I had heard about the shyness of bears, he did not run at all, and when I stopped short within a few steps of him, as he held his ground in a fighting attitude, my mistake was monstrously plain. I was then put on my good behavior, and never afterward forgot the right manners of the wilderness. This happened on my first Sierra excursion of the forest to the north of Yosemite Valley. I was eager to meet the animals, and many of them came to me as if willing to show themselves to make my acquaintance, but the bears kept out of my way. An old mountaineer in reply to my questions told me that bears were very shy, all save grim old grizzlies, and that I might travel the mountains for years without seeing one, unless I gave my mind to them and practiced the stealthy ways of hunters." nevertheless it was only a few weeks after i had received this information that i met the one mentioned above and obtained instruction at first hand i was encamped in the woods about a mile back of the rim of yosemite beside a stream that falls into the valley by the way of indian canyon nearly every day for weeks i went to the top of the north dome to sketch for it commands a general view of the valley and i was anxious to draw every tree and rock and waterfall Carlo, a St. Bernard dog, was my companion, a fine, intelligent fellow that belonged to a hunter who was compelled to remain all summer on the hot plains, and who loaned him to me for the season for the sake of having him in the mountains where he would be so much better off. Carlo knew bears through long experience, and he it was who led me to my first interview, though he seemed just as much surprised as the bear at my unhunter-like behavior." One morning in June, just as the sunbeams began to stream through the trees, I set out for a day's sketching on the dome, and before we had gone half a mile from camp, Carlo snuffed the air and looked cautiously ahead, lowered his bushy tail, drooped his ears, and began to step softly like a cat, turning every few yards and looking at me in the face with a telling expression, saying plainly enough, "'There is a bear a little way ahead.' I walked carefully in the indicated direction until I approached a small flowery meadow that I was familiar with, then crawled on the foot of a tree on its margin, bearing in mind what I had been told about the shyness of bears. Looking out cautiously over the instep of the tree, I saw a big, burly cinnamon bear about thirty yards off, half erect, his paws resting on the trunk of a fir that had fallen into the meadow, his hips almost buried in grass and flowers. He was listening attentively and trying to catch the scent, showing that in some way he was aware of our approach. I watched his gestures and tried to make the most of my opportunity to learn what I could about him, fearing he would not stay long. He made a fine picture, standing alert in the sunny garden, walled in by the most beautiful firs in the world. A Cinnamon Bear After examining him at leisure, Noting the sharp muzzle thrust inquiringly forward, the long shaggy hair on his broad chest, the stiff ears nearly buried in hair, and the slow, heavy way in which he moved his head, I foolishly made a rush on him, throwing up my arms and shouting to frighten him, to see him run. He did not mind the demonstration much, only pushed his head farther forward and looked at me sharply, as if asking— What now? If you want to fight, I'm ready. Then I began to fear that on me would fall the work of running, but I was afraid to run lest he should be encouraged to pursue me. Therefore I held my ground, staring him in the face within a dozen yards or so, putting on as bold a look as I could and hoping the influence of the human eye would be as great as it is said to be. Under these strained relations, the interview seemed to last a long time. Finally, the bear, seeing how still I was, calmly withdrew his huge paws from the log, gave me a piercing look as if warning me not to follow him, turned, and walked slowly up the middle of the meadow into the forest, stopping every few steps and looking back to make sure that I was not trying to take him at a disadvantage in a rear attack. I was glad to part with him, and greatly enjoyed the vanishing view as he waded through the lilies and columbines. Thenceforth I always tried to give bears respectful notice of my approach, and they usually kept well out of my way. Though they often came around my camp in the night, only once afterward, as far as I know, was I very near one of them in daylight. This time it was a grizzly I met, and as luck would have it, I was even nearer to him than I had been to the big cinnamon. Though not a large specimen, he seemed formidable enough at a distance of less than a dozen yards. His shaggy coat was well grizzled, his head almost white. When I first caught sight of him he was eating acorns under a Kellogg oak at a distance of perhaps seventy-five yards, and I tried to slip past without disturbing him. But he had either heard my steps on the gravel or caught my scent for he came straight toward me, stopping every rod or so to look and listen, and as I was afraid to be seen running I crawled on my hands and knees a little way to one side and hid behind a libocedrus, hoping he would pass me unnoticed. He soon came up opposite me and stood looking ahead while I looked at him, peering past the bulging trunk of a tree. At last, turning his head, he caught sight of mine, stared sharply a minute or two, and then, with fine dignity, disappeared in a manzanita covered earthquake talus considering how heavy and broad-footed bears are it is wonderful how little harm they do in the wilderness even in the well-watered gardens of the middle region where the flowers grow tallest and where during warm weather the bears wallow and roll no evidence of destruction is visible on the contrary under nature's direction the massive beasts act as gardeners. On the forest floor, carpeted with needles and brush, and on the tough sod of glacier meadows, bears make no mark, but around the sandy margin of lakes their magnificent tracks form grand lines of embroidery. Their well-worn trails extend along the main canyons on either side, and though dusty in some places make no scar on the landscape. They bite and break off the branches of some of the pines and oaks to get the nuts, but this pruning is so light that few mountaineers ever notice it. And though they interfere with the orderly lichen-veiled decay of fallen trees, tearing them to pieces to reach the colonies of ants that inhabit them, the scattered ruins are quickly pressed back into harmony by snow and rain and overleaning vegetation. The number of bears that make the park their home may be guessed by the number that have been killed by the two best hunters, Duncan and old David Brown. Duncan began to be known as a bear killer about the year 1865. He was then roaming the woods, hunting and prospecting on the south fork of the Merced. A friend told me that he killed his first bear near his cabin at Wawana, that after mustering courage to fire he fled without waiting to learn the effect of his shot. Going back in a few hours he found poor Bruin dead and gained courage to try again. Duncan confessed to me when we made an excursion together in 1875 that he was at first mortally afraid of bears, but after killing a half-dozen he began to keep count of his victims and became ambitious to be known as a great bear-hunter in nine years he had killed forty-nine keeping count by notches cut on one of the timbers of his cabin on the shore of crescent lake near the south boundary of the park he said the more he knew about bears the more he respected them and the less he feared them But at the same time, he grew more and more cautious, and never fired until he had every advantage, no matter how long he had to wait, and how far he had to go before he got the bear just right as to the direction of the wind, the distance, and the way of escape in case of accident, making allowance also for the character of the animal, old or young, cinnamon or grizzly. For old grizzlies, he said, he had no use whatever— and he was mighty careful to avoid their acquaintance he wanted to kill an even hundred then he was going to confine himself to safer game there was not much money in bears anyhow and a round hundred was enough for glory i have not seen or heard of him lately and do not know how his bloody count stands on my excursions i occasionally passed his cabin it was full of meat and skins hung in bundles from the rafters, and the ground about it was strewn with bones and hair, infinitely less tidy than a bear's den. He went as a hunter and guide with a geological survey party for a year or two, and was very proud of the scientific knowledge he picked up. His admiring fellow mountaineers, he said, gave him credit for knowing not only the botanical names of all the trees and bushes, but also. The botanical names of bears. The most famous hunter of the region was David Brown, an old pioneer who early in the gold period established his main camp in a little forest glade on the north fork of the Merced, which is still called Brown's Flat. No finer solitude for a hunter and prospector could be found. The climate is delightful all the year, and the scenery of both earth and sky is a perpetual feast Though he was not much of a scenery fellow, his friends say that he knew a pretty place when he saw it as well as anyone, and liked mightily to get on the top of a commanding ridge to look off. When out of provisions, he would take down his old-fashioned long-barreled rifle from its deer-horn rest over the fireplace, and set out in search of game seldom did he have to go far for venison because the deer liked the wooded slopes of pilot peak ridge with its open spots where they could rest and look about them and enjoy the breeze from the sea in warm weather free from troublesome flies while they found hiding places and fine aromatic food in the deer-brush chaparral a small wise dog was his only companion and well the little mountaineer understood the object of every hunt whether deer or bears, or only grouse hidden in the fir-tops. In deer-hunting Sandy had little to do, trotting behind his master as he walked noiselessly through the fragrant woods, careful not to step heavily on dry twigs, scanning open spots in the chaparral where the deer fed in the early morning and toward sunset, peering over ridges and swells as new outlooks were reached and along alder and willow-fringed flats and streams until he found a young buck, killed it, tied its legs together, threw it on his shoulder, and so back to camp. But when bears were hunted, Sandy played an important part as leader and several times saved his master's life, and it was as a bear hunter that David Brown became famous. His method, as I had it from a friend who had passed many an evening in his cabin listening to his long stories of adventure, was simply to take a few pounds of flour and his rifle and go slowly and silently over hill and valley in the loneliest part of the wilderness until little Sandy came upon the fresh track of a bear, then follow it to the death, paying no heed to time. Wherever the bear went, he went, however rough the ground— led by sandy who looked back from time to time to see how his master was coming on and regulated his pace accordingly never growing weary or allowing any other track to divert him when high ground was reached a halt was made to scan the openings in every direction, and perchance Bruin would be discovered sitting upright on his haunches, eating manzanita berries, pulling down the fruit-laden branches with his paws and pressing them together so as to get substantial mouthfuls, however mixed with leaves and twigs. The time of year enabled the hunter to determine approximately where the game would be found, in spring and early summer, in lush grass and clover meadows and in berry tangles along the banks of streams, or on pea-vine and lupine-clad slopes, in late summer and autumn beneath the pines, eating the cones cut off by the squirrels, and in oak groves at the bottom of canyons munching acorns, manzanita berries, and cherries, and after snow had fallen, in alluvial bottoms, feeding on ants and yellow-jacket wasps, these food places were always cautiously approached so as to avoid the chance of sudden encounters whenever said the hunter i saw a bear before he saw me i had no trouble in killing him i just took lots of time to learn what he was up to and how long he would be likely to stay and to study the direction of the wind and the lay of the land then i worked round to leeward of him no matter how far I had to go, crawled and dodged to within a hundred yards near the foot of a tree that I could climb, but which was too small for the bear to climb. There I looked well into the priming of my rifle, took off my boots so as to climb quickly, if necessary, and with my rifle in rest and sandy behind me, waited until my bear stood right. Then I made a sure or at least a good shot back of the foreleg. "'In case he showed fight, I got up the tree I had in mind before he could reach me. "'But bears are slow and awkward with their eyes, "'and being to windward, they could not scent me, "'and often I got in a second shot before they saw the smoke. "'Usually, however, they tried to get away when they were hurt, "'and I let them go a good safe while before I ventured into the brush after them. "'Then Sandy was pretty sure to find them dead. "'If not, he barked bold as a lion to draw attention.' or rushed in and nipped them behind, enabling me to get a safe distance and watch a chance for a finishing shot. Oh yes, bear hunting is a mighty interesting business, and safe enough if you follow just right, though like every other business, especially the wild kind, it has its accidents, and Sandy and I have had close calls at times. Bears are nobody's fools, and they know enough to let men alone as a general thing, unless they are wounded, or cornered, or have cubs. In my opinion, a hungry old mother would catch and eat a man if she could, which is only fair play anyhow, for we eat them. But nobody, as far as I know, has been eaten up in these rich mountains. Why they never tackle a fellow when he is lying asleep, I never could understand. They could gobble us mighty handy. But I suppose it's nature to respect a sleeping man. End of Section 10